Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, old sports, and welcome to the Hello, Old Sports podcast on the Sports History Network. My name is Dan Newman, and I'd like to thank you for once again joining us here into our journey to sports yesteryear. I am joined, as always, by my co-host and brother, Andrew Newman. Andrew, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Dan. I'm hot. It's a hot, muggy day here in uh, New York and I think most of the East Coast. And uh, it's been a while since we've recorded. I mean, we've had episodes still coming out pretty regularly, but just the way it worked out, we had a bunch of episodes in the can that we recorded, and then we've been putting those out. And it's been a while since we've actually done a recording session. So I'm interested to see if we're still... uh, on our game or if we're a little rusty or maybe we were never on our game in the first place. So Yeah. And you say it's been a while since we recorded and what it's really been is a while since we've recorded with just the two of us. Uh, we did the, the previous episode, the Baltimore Orioles of the 1890s, we recorded just the two of us. But prior to that, I think the last six or seven episodes were done with somebody else so you're right we're just kind of getting back into the swing of things of recording episodes with just the two of us sort of the traditional hello old sports episodes and we do hope to get some more guests on in the future whether that's friends of ours or other hosts on the network or we've had a couple authors on so we do hope to continue to engage with guests but it's nice to do a nice to do a, a typical episode every once in a while as well and We've done a lot of good stuff. We have a lot more good stuff to do as the summer goes on. So we'd like to thank you all for joining us as well. And so I think uh, before we start, we would just like to, as always, thank you for listening and also encourage us, encourage you rather to do any number of things if you like what you hear here. First of all, If you don't already, follow us on iTunes or your podcast app of choice. Give us a nice rating. Follow us on Facebook, Hello Old Sports Podcast. If you want to reach out to the show and tell us what you think or give us some suggestions, critiques, you name it, feel free to do that. You can either email us at helloldsports at gmail.com or you can check us out on the Sports History Network website at the Hello Old Sports page. You can check us out or you can check Andrew out on Monday nights on Facebook doing his split decision show on Facebook Live. And if you like what you hear from this show, you can also check out some of the other great shows on the Sports History Network. The one that Andrew and I have been most involved with recently is Darren Hayes and his Pigskin Dispatch. We recently did an episode on the best NFL players to wear the number 51. And we're recording one on the the best players to wear the number 58. And that one is likely to air probably right around the time that this airs in uh, late June or early July. So today's episode is another journey back into a specific year in American sports. Back in the fall, we did an episode on 1920, a two-part episode, 100 years after the year 1920. 
And this year we are going to be, or today that we are going to be talking about another monumental year in the history of American sports. We're going to travel back 80 years to the year 1941 and talk about any number of topics, including a man who started baseball's famous streak that's got us all aglow. He's just a man and not a freak. Jolton Joe DiMaggio. So 1941 in baseball and in all other sports today here on the Sports History Network's Hello Old Sports. Yeah, and we'll, baseball is going to be a big focus of the episode. As you would imagine, the 40s, baseball, by far the number one sport in the country. You know, there's certainly some other things we'll touch on, boxing and football specifically. But, um, you know, the year 1941, and certainly when we get to the end of the year, we'll, we'll hammer it a little bit more. There's two aspects to it. One is the one that most people immediately go to, which is that this is March through September 1941. You know, just a couple of months later, the United States entered World War II. So you see like in the Ken Burns baseball thing from the early 90s, they reference like baseball had one great last season of peace before the war. And that's something that a few years later, obviously, and throughout the years now, you look back and go like, wow, there was that great year. And then, you know, the war really disrupted baseball. But even putting all that aside and just looking at it, absent any historical context, it was a great year for baseball, both individually, team-wise. You had the DiMaggio streak, like my brother was mentioning. You had a bunch of other stuff. I don't want to spoil the episode, although I'm sure most people listening to this know where we're going with a lot of it. Even if the United States had not, even if it wasn't the last baseball season before 1941 or before, uh, before World War, the United States entered World War II, it would still be a very important baseball season historically. Definitely. And I think that really there's, there's first of all, there's two things that happened that year that have not happened since. And one of them is a record, which is Joe DiMaggio's. 56 game hitting streak, which by 12 games, so almost by a full 25%, is the longest hitting streak in the history of Major League Baseball. And then you also have Ted Williams hitting 406. Now, some people sometimes mistakenly say, well, Ted, will Ted Williams' 406 batting average record ever be broken? Now, it should be made very clear that the, the 406 for Ted Williams is not the single season batting average record. There were a number of guys who hit 400 in the years prior, even if you want to discount the 1800s when things were a little different, several players hit 400 in the 20th century prior to Williams doing it in 1941, but nobody has done it since. So it is, a couple of guys have come close. I remember in 94 when they had a strike year, there were talk that maybe John Olerud or Andres Galarraga might do it. And didn't didn't George Brett, I think, hit in the 390s one year in the 80s, if I'm not mistaken? Oh, look. So that's really, those are really the two individual achievements. And I think one of the things that people didn't necessarily realize after the fact, historically, neither Williams nor DiMaggio was the baseball god that they would become in later years DiMaggio actually was not the most popular player in New York he had some injury issues he often held out for for better contracts and would miss the beginning of seasons in fact DiMaggio's rookie year was 36 so by 1941 he's in his sixth year 
in the five previous seasons, whether because of either injuries or holdouts, DiMaggio only was in the starting lineup on opening day for the Yankees in one game, and the fans didn't like that. So 41, and then similarly with Williams, Williams was only in his third year. He was he had a very unique personality. He was moody. He was moody with the writers. He was moody with the fans. He had sort of this, as he did for the most of his life, he had this sort of loud and sometimes abrasive personality. And so he wasn't beloved in Boston in 41 the way he would become later either. So both of those guys really have their coming out party in 1941. Now, a little bit of an odd thing to say, but especially with DiMaggio because he'd won four World Series already, but he really didn't become Joe DiMaggio in big capital letters until the 1941 season. So as far as individual achievements, those are really the two big things. And then the real excitement from the point of view of the playoffs or the pennant race is in the National League. The American League, there really is no pennant race. In fact, the Red Sox finish in second place to the Yankees, but they're 17 games back. So when you talk about once the DiMaggio streak is over and all you have is Williams, the real drama is in the National League between the upstart Brooklyn Dodgers and the sort of I guess you could also say maybe in some ways the Cardinals were a little bit. When did they? They had won the World Series in '34, and then had they had they lost to the Yankees? I'm sorry. They were about to win three straight pennants. Now, obviously. Okay, so they won it in '39. The Cardinals. No, they. I said they were about to win three straight pennants. Oh, they won in '42, '43, and '44. That's right. I know the war impacts that a little, but still. Yeah, and the Cardinals that year. That this was Musial's rookie year. They had Hall of Famers like Enos Slaughter. Johnny Mize was the first baseman who would later go on to be a legendary giant later in the 40s and then go on to win a bunch of championships with the Yankees as sort of a part-time player. So, yeah, they, this was a Cardinals team that was kind of on the cusp. This is a team. This is when Branch Rickey was still the general manager or the team president. I don't know what the exact title was of the Cardinals. This was a couple of years before Rickey would go to Brooklyn and I guess the Cardinals had kind of, for most of the 30s, they were not, because the Yankees played the Cubs in 38. Who did the Yankees, and the Reds in 39, I believe. Yeah, it was, I know they played the Giants twice, the Cubs and the Reds in some order in that 36 through 39 run. And then, and then who won the NL pennant in 40? Was that the Cardinals? I believe it was Cincinnati. So Okay, so Cincinnati won in 39 and 40. So the Cardinals, who'd been sort of regular pennant winners throughout most of the 20s and 30s, by the time 1941 rolls around, they've not won one in seven years either. So two teams that are sort of new to the scene in 1941 competing in the National League in the Dodgers and the Giants. So all of that is sort of a long-winded way of setting the table for the 1941 season. Where would you like to start as far as the 41 baseball season? Well, I just want to circle back real quick. Uh, George Brett hit 390 even 390 in 1980, the year they won the pennant and lost to Philadelphia. And the, just the other thing I think is important to mention about DiMaggio, like you said, yeah, he came up in 36. The team, I don't even know if you could say the team won right away. They continued to win. Now, I mean, they hadn't won a title in a couple of years, but the first couple of years of those teams, that was still Lou Gehrig's team. And while Lou Gehrig was not the most brash you know, guy in the world, he was by then a really established star. He'd been on all the teams with Ruth. 
you know, he was a steady guy. He didn't really seem to rub anybody the wrong way necessarily, except Babe Ruth's wife. You know, so then even as Gehrig is leaving and it's becoming DiMaggio's team, Gehrig is, is leaving because he's got this terrible illness and ultimately ends up dying in 1941. So even though you look and go like, oh, well, they won right away with DiMaggio. Of course, it was his team right away. Wasn't necessarily the case until, like you said, this this 41 year where he had center stage, obviously really center stage for a couple of months there and then brings it home in the end and sets up the really the next leg of the Yankee dynasty through the early 50s until he passes the torch to the next guy. And and I think your point about it, this about Gehrig is a good one. And we are recording this in the second week of June and uh, it'll likely air, like I said, at some point in late June, early July. But MLB just finished having its very first Lou Gehrig day. Uh, I think it was this past weekend or maybe the weekend before. And it, what it was, was it celebrated the 80-year anniversary of Gehrig's death in 1941. So sort of just as DiMaggio is really starting to come to the forefront with the streak, Gehrig passes away and it's this very sort of end of one era and the symbolic sort of passing of the torch into the DiMaggio years where DiMaggio is the most famous athlete in America and the undisputed leader of the New York Yankees. And that's a position, even in the three years that he misses during the war, that's a position that, like you said, will hold for the next 10 years until he retires. So, yeah, I mean, I guess it makes sense to just kind of start at the beginning chronologically. I mean, like you mentioned, going into 1941, it's... And this is something we'll... We'll touch on as I when we get to other sports, and I was kind of looking at, um, you know, like the tennis and golf majors, and it kind of caught me off guard. I'm like, what do you mean there was only one tennis major that year? And then it's like, oh, yeah, we as Americans, even people who are more history conscious, tend to think, you know, tend not, I don't want to say think, but like you sort of lap, if you're not careful with your thinking, you sort of lapse into. Oh, December 7th, 1941 is when World War II began. Not only was World War II very much underway in the rest of the world, even in early 41, it was becoming clear that eventually the United States was going to be involved in some capacity. So, you know, you go into the into the baseball season and, you know, that Yankee run had ended the year before they had lost the pennant by a couple, just a couple of games in 1940. I think it was like a three team race and Detroit won the, won the pennant that year, right? In 40. Yeah. Detroit. Absolutely. So Detroit wins. They interrupt the Yankee, uh, you know, run of four straight championships. Like you mentioned with the national league, it's a little bit of a, the reds are clearly the lead dog, but it's only been a couple of years. You have a bunch of teams floating on the periphery. So it's kind of set up to be, a little bit more of an unpredictable year than it might have been in the previous five or six years where on one side, you could basically pencil in who the American league champion was going to be. And on the other side, you kind of maybe had it narrowed down to just take two teams or something like that before the season even began. Why don't we talk first about this Dodger team? Sure. So this is a team, the Dodgers had not been, we talked a little bit about this uh, way back when I actually, uh, within the last week I was listening back to our, 
I don't listen to the episodes when they come out because after, by the time I've recorded them and then edited them, I don't really need to hear them for a third time when they come out. So I usually wait about four or five months to listen to the episodes. And I actually went all the way back to our second and third episodes uh, over the last week or so and listened back when we did the New York Yankees all-time team and then the New York National League all-time team. And we talked a little bit about how we talked about Zach Wheat and how he was on the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1960 and then in 1920 when they won what had been their only two pennants in the 20th century. And so the Dodgers became this sort of joke the bums, the team that never won, you know, Bill Terry managing the Giants saying, is Brooklyn still in the league? And they were really bad until the late 1930s. And in the late 1930s, I think it was 1938 was when they traded for Leo DeRocher, who had been a shortstop and sort of a leader of the St. Louis Cardinals. Was DeRocher the manager of those Cardinals teams? I'm pulling I'm pulling DeRocher up here. Let me just get the exact details. You talking about like the guest house gang? No, he wasn't. I'm sorry. You're right. He was not. Um, so DeRocher had been just giving you his DeRocher came up with the Yankees in 25, 28 and 29. He was a Yankee. Went to the Reds 30 to 33. Was with the Cardinals 33 to 37. And then started with Brooklyn in uh, 38. DeRocher was a, was a, not a great player, but a scrappy player. He won, you know, he won a couple of titles when he was with the gas house, gas house gang Cardinals. Babe Ruth hated him. He called him the All-American out because he said he couldn't couldn't hit for anything. And I think also there's a story that Babe Ruth caught Leo DeRocher stealing from him and beat the living hell out of him at some point. But DeRocher was sort of the typical 1930s brawling player. And in 19... I wanted to stop with that. Babe, there's the old every story about Babe Ruth with money and possessions and things. The only way Babe Ruth was going to notice you stole from him is if he saw you doing it. So, like, <laughs> you had to be a pretty bad thief to get caught by Babe Ruth. <laughs> well, it's not hard to know where Babe Ruth was at any time. He was very loud and boisterous, and everybody was always the center of attention. And B, he, you know, between the bedroom things and drinking and all of that chasing his manager around with a knife, like just wait until he's not around. If you're going to steal things from him, it's not that hard. I think it was in the Ken Burns baseball thing where they said he was a man with an almost unlimited capacity. This is DeRocher an almost unlimited capacity for making a bad situation worse. (laughs) So two things happen in 38, which is that they, the manager of the Dodgers, Burley Grimes trades for DeRocher from the Cardinals And this is also when the Cardinals, uh, I'm sorry, when the Dodgers hire the former general manager of the Cincinnati Reds, Larry McPhail, and he becomes the team president of the Dodgers. And McPhail is one of the great innovators in baseball history. He was the one who has first has the idea for night baseball in Major League Baseball. Now, it had been around in the Negro Leagues and other places, but McPhail is the one with the foresight to bring night baseball into the major leagues as a way to boost attendance during the depression. He is also one of the first ones. He's one of the pioneers of putting the games on radio, which you wouldn't believe it or not. Radio was something that a lot of teams, especially in the New York area were resistant to because they thought if fans were able to listen to the game on the radio, they wouldn't buy a ticket and go to the game. So 
McPhail comes to the Dodgers also in 1938, and he takes an immediate liking to DeRocher. They're they're very similar. They're both loud, hard-drinking, not-afraid-of-a-fight type of guys. And so in 38, he fires Burley Grimes and makes DeRocher the manager of the Dodgers. And 39 for the Dodgers is also the first year where they sort of adopt what we think of as sort of the the classic Dodger blue and white. They'd actually worn green for a while in the 30s, green and white, but they go to the, the classic Dodgers blue and white uniform scheme starting in the 1930s, and they gradually start to crawl up in the standings. 39, they're in third place, 84 and 69. 40, they're in second place, 88 and 65. And then by 41 they are ready to make that final leap and really contend for a pennant for the first time in two decades. And it's, you mentioned them going from, I believe in 39, they jumped from seventh in 38 to third in 39, which is obviously a big deal. And the goal is always to win the pennant. But an even a, a big thing back then was the second division versus the first division. And I would always hear people, you know, old clips I'd hear, whether it was managers or whoever talk about that. And I thought it was just a way to say like, well, we want to finish in the top half of the league. But the way it was structured was if you finished in second, third or fourth, the first division, you got increasingly smaller shares of the postseason money. So obviously the, you know, if you won the pennant and then the world series, you got a lot of money for that. And relative to what your contract was back then, it was a much bigger deal than it is now, but you still got to cut like a bonus basically in this, if you finished in second and third and in fourth. So going from fifth to fourth was probably the biggest move you could make other than going from second to first in baseball at the time. And this was a time where the money mattered to these guys. No, first of all, it was in the middle of a depression, but second of all, and this, this is something that carries over probably really even in the fifties and the sixties where winning a world series or getting a share of the postseason money that could mean the difference for some of these guys between having to get a job in the off season and not. So it really was life changing for these guys to win a pennant, to win a world series or to finish in the first division and get a share of the postseason money. And so the fact that they starting, like you said, in 39 start to creep back up or really to creep up for the first time because they'd really only had a couple good years in, in all 40 years of their national league existence. That's a really big deal. And just one last thing on the money. The other thing too is, and we're not talking about, you know, Joe DiMaggio, he was going to be fine whether they made, whether he got postseason money or not. But the other thing too, is you really have no negotiating power at that point, other than just the benevolence of the owners. So if the team does well, if they make the world series, if they win the world series, the team has more money. So they might be a little more inclined to give you a little bit of a bonus or not a bonus, but like a little bit of a bump in your next year's contract, which is really your only choice at that point. So beyond just playing for the spirit of the game, all of these things matter in terms of getting more money which in turn creates a more healthy sort of clubhouse and a hungry team, et cetera. So. All right. So let's talk a little bit. I guess the other thing I should mention, and we'll get to this later is that despite the fact that they're sort of kindred spirits, McPhail and DeRocher end up hating each other. 
there's a, a famous, um, I, th- I think that DeRocher at one point told McPhail, you know what you should do? You should go and F yourself. <laughs> and it's like, so they were not, um, you know, and, and DeRocher gets fired by McPhail, I think, dozens of times and then rehired the next day. McPhail, in a lot of ways, is sort of like a, a Steinbrenner with alcohol in the in the 40s. And so the relationship between he and DeRocher is kind of similar to the Steinbrenner-Martin relationship 40 years later, where they have very sim- similar personalities and for that reason just cannot get along for any sustained period of time. So. I want to talk a little bit about this Dodger team because the Brooklyn Dodgers in their existence after 1920, they went in 41, 47, 49, 52, 53, 55, and 56. Every single one of those times they play the Yankees in the world series. Every single one of those times with the exception of 1955, they lose the world series from 47 to 56 in that decade. There's some, there's a lot of similarity between the teams. Now, 47, which is Jackie Robinson's first year, it's not exactly the team that it would be going on after that, but there are you know at least some of the same players. And then starting in 49, it's really the Campanella, Snyder, Hodges, Don Newcomb. It's that Dodger team. The boys of summer. The boys of summer, exactly. The 41 team doesn't get talked about as much because it's obviously it's before Jackie Robinson. It's before the war. It's before a lot of these players who would define the teams come in. But it's really sort of an impressive team in its own right. And credit kind of goes to McPhail for this. It's he first of all, he brings in some young guys. He brings in Pee Wee Reese. The shortstop, I believe, I don't think it's Reese's rookie year in 41. Let me pull up Reese's now. Reese was a rookie in 40, and then 41 is his first full year. He plays 152 games at shortstop, and so it's the beginning of the long career of Pee Wee Reese with the Dodgers. The only guy who plays on every Dodgers pennant-winning team from 41 to 56. And then he also was able to bring in a lot of guys who were veterans who'd been cast off by other teams. So they're one of their outfielders that year is a guy by the name of Pete Reeser, who um, ends up being a three-time all-star for Brooklyn and wins a batting title. He's sort of the other, he hits 343 in 1941. He's sort of the other young guy on the team with Reese. They're both 22, but then he also is able to bring in guys who had been stars elsewhere that he's able to get for for cheap prices because the teams view them as over the hill. Sort of the most prominent example of this is probably Joe Medwick, uh, Ducky Medwick, who's a Hall of Famer for the Cardinals, had won the Triple Crown in 19... What year did Medwick win the Triple Crown? 1937 with the Cardinals and was MVP. He'd won the World Series in 1934. He was an eight-time All-Star, seven-time All-Star, I should say, with the Cardinals. And so, you know, McPhail is able to acquire him. I want to see here if I can see on the list what, um, if there's a, if it says what McPhail acquires him for. While you're, do, while you're looking, there's also, he only plays in 11 games, but they also had, briefly on that same team, you talk about going back, they had Paul Wehner, who had been with the Pirates going back as far as 1926 and was sort of the signature guy on those teams for a period of time. And here he is in 1941, still 
getting a cup of coffee with with the Dodgers and actually played a few more years, but that was mostly a product of the war and just that he was too old to be drafted. So he was still around. And I actually have a story about Paul Wayner in a second. So they acquire Medwick and I was wrong. I thought that he got Medwick cheap, but he didn't. He uh, McPhail actually trades for Medwick in June of 1940. And there are other players involved in the deal, but the upshot is, is that, McPhail pays $125,000 to bring Joe Medwick to the Dodgers. So he's not afraid to spend money to improve his team. And then the other real veteran that they bring dollars in today's money. I'm sorry. That's almost $200,000 in today's money. 125,000. It's a lot. It's probably millions. I would think a lot more than that. So it, it does. It speaks to his willingness to, to spend money to build the team. And then they also bring in a guy named Dolph Camilli who's the MVP in 41, who had been a sort of a little bit of a journeyman in the National League. He'd been on both the Cubs and the Phillies and had been a good player, but maybe not a great one. But he has this one great year in 41 where he leads the league in home runs with 34 and RBIs with 120, average not as high, 285. So he's really starting to build this team. Uh, Billy Herman is another guy who was... Billy Herman had been, a, he was a second baseman for the team, and he had been, I believe Herman had been with the Cubs in the 30s. Yeah, Herman, his best year uh, prior to this was probably 32. He was on the Cubs team that lost to the Yankees in 1932, and that was the called shot year. And I want to see how much McPhail paid for Herman. Um, but, 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 but. He paid $65,000 and a couple of players for Herman. So he's, he's willing to spend money to bring in players to this team while also sort of scavengering for guys who are maybe sort of cast offs. And so by 41, the Dodgers are really positioned. They're in a place to win. $125,000 in 1941 is just over 2.2 million in today's money. So just figured I would point that out. The other thing I wanted to mention is you mentioned Paul Wayner. I saw an interesting story and it involves another player who was another really really good player for these Dodgers in the forties, somebody who we have to kind of, we have to sort of mention the elephant in the room with this guy, um, which is Dixon. I'm sorry. Oh, I said, you said elephant in the room. I thought you meant he played on the A's first. (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead. And that's Dixie Walker, who was a very popular player in the 1940s with the Dodgers. He was actually, known as the People's Church, which was the Brooklyn way of saying choice. And they loved him. He was very popular in Brooklyn, even though he himself was, as you might imagine, by the name, he was somebody who had, you know, had Southern roots. And he was the third outfielder alongside the batting title winner, Reezer and uh, Medwick, who we talked about. Dixie Walker actually got his start with the Yankees. He was on the Yankees in 31 through 35, and then they traded him midway through the 36 season, I think partially to make room for DiMaggio. And I'm just looking again because I'm, I'm just sort of fascinated. This. He's a guy that they do get really cheap. They actually get him off of waivers in 1939, and he has a really, really good couple of years there for the Dodgers in the late 30s and the 40s, just taking a look, uh, taking a look at his stats. What does he do in 41? He hits 311 in 1941. Not a power guy, Dixie Walker, only only nine home runs. But for whatever reason, he is beloved by the Brooklyn fans. In fact, 
early in the season, McPhail orders DeRocher to play Paul Wayner, even though Paul Wayner is over the hill. I think he's Paul Wayner. I think might be. What did you say? Was he into his forties by that point? Paul Wayner. Uh, I'll go back and check. I mean, I know he came up his first year with the Pirates was in 26. He was born in 1907, so he would have been 34. So certainly not. Oh, excuse me. Excuse me. I, I clicked on the wrong person. I'm sorry. That was Whit Wyatt. Let me. Uh, he was 38. I'm looking at it now. So he was an old man. He was my age. He was born in 1903. Yeah. And I mean, 38, A, in professional baseball terms, and then B, 38, then in professional baseball after years of train rides and playing every day and things. It's probably the equivalent of 42 or 43 these days. But McPhail likes the fact that he has a future Hall of Famer on the team. And so he orders DeRocher to play Paul Wayner in the outfield. And they have Medwick and they have Pete Reeser. And so Dixie Walker ends up being the odd man out. (laughs) And 5,000 Brooklyn fans send telegrams saying that they're going to boycott the team if Dixie Walker does not get into the game. And fortunately for the Dodgers, those fans do not follow through on that. And then fortunate for Walker, it, this doesn't last long. Wayner is old and he's not very good anymore. And so he soon finds his way back into the lineup. So, and then the pitching for that team, and we'll, we'll loop back and talk about Walker some more in a second. The pitching maybe not as, not as famous. They have two 20 game winners, Kirby Higby and Whit Wyatt. And, they also have somebody who's probably the uh, the best relief pitcher in the game of the day, a guy by the name of Hugh Casey and somebody who is well-known or at least well-believed to be a prominent spitballer, even though the spitball has been outlawed for about 20 years. And Hugh Casey and his tendency to doctor the ball will come up uh, at the end of the 1941 baseball season. Did you have anything else to add there? When you look at it, we talked a little about the boys of summer and that's kind of the 47 to 46, excuse me, 47 to 56 narrative where they're winning the pennant almost every year. They're losing to the Yankees almost every year. You have the 51 ALCS where the earth. Wow. I was wrong in a lot of ways there. You have the 51 playoff series against the giants. That's almost like the story when people talk about the Brooklyn Dodgers. And to me, it, it kind of ties back to just what you were saying about, you know, as recently as 1938, they were wearing green uniforms. And this was actually true with the Giants, too, who it was the early 40s before the Giants sort of settled in black and orange. And we have a tendency to think of the Giants and the Dodgers before they moved. It's like we almost all the footage you have of those teams is the late 40s to the early 50s. So to think of the teams before that, and especially with the Dodgers, it's like, this was a team that came out of nowhere and won the pennant and who knows what they would have done. And they obviously don't get back for six more years, but really the next four seasons, 42, 43, 44, 45 are heavily impacted to one degree or another by the war. So what you end up with is almost this little standalone team that, yeah, there's a few guys who are on the later team, but you know, it, it's just sort of this weird little pocket that flares up and then some of the players in this, whether it's Pee Wee Reese or a guy like Dixie Walker who doesn't really, do, you know, we can talk, we're talking about the 1941 Dodgers. We're talking about his play 
we obviously should mention why he's a famous name, but every time we mention him, we don't need to, to go like, Oh, and of course, you know what I'm saying? Like we can talk about this story without that specific aspect being hammered over and over. So I'll tell it real quick and I'll kind of end it on a somewhat happy note. Dixie Walker, again, Southern man, I think Alabama. And as is, looks like he was born in Georgia. But I think he, I think he was lived in Alabama. If I'm not, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Dixie Walker was one of the players who led the effort to prevent Jackie Robinson from joining the team in 1947. Maybe we'll do an episode on this one day, but what actually happened there, whether there was a petition, whether there was a formal boycott, whether there was, or there wasn't actually a boycott, whether there were talks of a formal boycott, not entirely clear. Fact of the matter is Dixie Walker after 1947 is traded away from the Dodgers. It's, it's always a question of whether he asked to be traded because of Jackie Robinson, whether he asked to be traded because he felt he was being unfairly blamed for what happened with Jackie Robinson or whether he was just traded um, sort of at management's own initiative. The sort of happy ending is that later in his career or later in his life, I should say, Dixie Walker expressed really strong and considerable remorse about how he had acted back then and it actually goes on to be a coach in the Dodgers system all the way up through the 1970s. I think he's first a minor league manager and then later later he's I think he's the Dodgers hitting coach for a couple years in the mid 1970s and when I had Warren Rogan on at the end of last year to talk about Jimmy Wynn who was a player with the mostly with the Astros but then later went to the Dodgers later in his career Walker's brother was Harry Walker, who was a Cardinal in the 40s and then went on to manage the Astros. And for whatever reason, Jimmy Wynn and Harry Walker clashed. They didn't like each other, whatever the reason was. And then when Walker got to the Dodgers, I'm sorry, when Wynn got to the Dodgers, Dixie Walker, and keeping in mind, Jimmy Wynn was a black man, Walker went right up to him and said, I don't know what problems you had with my brother, but I want you to know that that's not, you know, that's not going to affect our relationship. So, and one thing I do want to point out, there was a, and I'm not trying to defend him. I just, we're going way off the beaten path, but to me, the Jackie Robinson story is an important enough story that A, it shouldn't just encompass six months in 1947, and B, you should tell the real story. There was a Dixie Walker, several Dixie Walkers on every team. Dixie Walker certainly current history and even to a lot of people at the time was, you know, history did not judge him wisely. And I'm not defending him, but what I'm saying is we don't need to make this into a, he doesn't need to become a cartoon character. You know what I mean? And he was a guy from the South. His team was suddenly going to be integrated. They were going to be the first team to be integrated. And he went out on a really bad limb that was terrible and certainly paid the price for it both in getting traded from a pennant winning team and, you know, history, et cetera. But I will guarantee you if the first African-American player had been signed to play for the, you know, Pittsburgh pirates or the Philadelphia athletics or anybody, there would have been several Dixie walkers on any of those teams as well. That, that That's really all the point, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, I think those are all important things to raise. The other interesting thing about the Jackie Robinson story is just to kind of bring it bring it back to the the modern thing is that 
the 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 derocher element of the Jackie Robinson story is great and frankly hilarious because derocher is the guy who finds out about this potential boycott and basically defends Robinson to the hilt. This man has a right to be here. He's you know he's going to make us all rich. And then derocher and Robinson ends up spending the next ten years hating each other, not for any deep-seated racial reason but just because they hate each other based on their personalities and that's one thing i like about about leo de rocher is he's probably the first guy in the country to hate jackie robinson that has nothing to do with his skin color he hates jackie robinson because he becomes the manager of the giants jackie robinson is on the dodgers by that point jackie robinson is not the genteel turn the other cheek 1947 jackie robinson and they got on each other about baseball and they tried to ride each other. And, you know, so that's, I, I'm, it's just interesting to me that, you know, it, it, I've always just kind of gotten a kick out of that, that even when he's on the, as the giants manager and, you know, is all over Robinson, it's not racial at that point. It's, and you, you know. know what I just read the other day that was actually, by, the, by the way, Robinson gave it back to him. plenty. Just of, as good. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing that I just found out about this, I'm actually for, for Justin McGuire for baseball to buy the book. I'm reading a biography of Horace Stoneham, who was the owner of the Giants for 40 years. And this, the part I just read was the story about how DeRocher basically in 48 was managing the Dodgers on a Friday. And by Saturday, he was managing the Giants. It was like a, a midseason trade. The reason why DeRocher and Robinson clashed originally was that in 47, Robinson is getting ready to join the team. DeRocher is going to be the manager. And then DeRocher is about to get, get suspended for a year for consorting with gamblers. They, they call up this guy, Bert Schotten, who becomes the manager of the Dodgers in 47. They, they make the World Series. They lose it in seven games. Going into 48, DeRocher is supposed to come back. And he comes back and the team struggles immensely. And one of the reasons why they struggle is that Robinson having had this heroic 1947 rookie of the year, I mean, you know, beyond that, obviously integrates the game sort of goes on the banquet circuit for the year. And if anybody deserves it, it's Jackie Robinson goes on the banquet circuit, eats, drinks, all that stuff and comes into training camp, fat and out of shape. And DeRocher loses his mind. He's like, this guy was skinny for shot and he's fat for me. And so he's like, you know, making Robinson run laps and everything. So that the hatred probably started there even before he goes to manage the Giants. And, and just to sum this up, and if anybody's like, oh, yeah, I'm sure it wasn't racial. Those Giants, team, first of all, Leo DeRocher loved Willie Mays like a son in terms of probably what you would consider now coddling him to try and, you know, get his confidence up. And those giant teams were well ahead of the curve in terms of number of black players and all of that. So we've gone way off the beaten path here, but you know, I'll take any, any example to talk about, you know, New York baseball in the late forties and early fifties. So, so why don't we go back to talking about New York baseball in the early forties? We've kind of set the table with the Dodgers. I think we should probably also set the table with the Yankees a little bit. Absolutely. So they'd won the four in a row, but then 40 was kind of a down year for them. And Ed Barrow, who was the longtime president of the team, passed away in 1940. They finished third. They finished 88 and 66. It was the first full year without Gehrig. And so going into 41, I think there were some questions out there. And then also that's compounded by the fact that they really start off the season 
in a slump. It's it's the first year, um, in addition to being kind of DiMaggio's coming out year, it's the first year for Phil Rizzuto at shortstop. And so in a lot of ways, even though this is a team that had just won four World Series, it is a little bit of a turning of the page for the Yankees in 1941. Yeah, and it's... You know, it, it's it's almost hard, and I'm just as guilty of this as anybody, to look and just go like, oh, well, the Yankees were this unstoppable 42-year machine that was barely interrupted. But you got to think about each individual year, with very few exceptions. You know, 27, I would argue, is an exception. And a couple other teams had their struggles, had their ups and downs. And as, as I'm just looking here, sort of superficially on the 41 roster... They have Bill Dickey as their catcher, who's 34 years old, which we just talked about how old Paul Wainer was is a couple of years older than that. They have a couple of guys who are, you know, really young. You mentioned Phil Rizzuto is 23, Joe Gordon, 26, DiMaggio is 26. It's a lot of youth. And then from a pitching staff standpoint, Red Ruffing is 36 years old. He's probably the most famous name. On, well, Lefty Gomez as well. But um you know, it wasn't a foregone conclusion that, oh, this team is just, yeah, they lost last year, but now they're just going to get right back on it and cruise to another pennant. And people are worried and they don't get all out to a great start. And by the second week of May, the third week of May, by May 15th, they are at home hosting the White Sox uh, with a record of 13 and 15. And maybe we should pick the story up there. Yeah. So they're, 13 and 15, they're obviously struggling. And in that game, I believe, were they getting their butts kicked in that game? Or They lost 13 to 1. Okay. And during that game, Joe DiMaggio gets a base hit and would then go on from there to begin. Well, that began the longest then and still by far longest consecutive games hitting streak in Major League Baseball history. 56 games, and obviously we'll talk about sort of during it, but you know, at the end I'll go over his numbers. But uh, basically two months where he got at least one base hit in every game, and as he was getting closer, he was just passing more and more records. They discovered a record from the 1890s Orioles, who we talked about uh, in the last episode when he passed Willie Keeler and then just kept going for another week and a half, two weeks until uh, till Cleveland. And I think that there's been a myth out there, and I came up with this in a couple places as I was doing some of my research. There's a myth out there that maybe people didn't pick up on this until he hit like somewhere in the 30s. But it turns out that this was actually something that people were aware of pretty pretty easily or pretty quickly, I should say, probably starting at about somewhere in the twenties, I think. Well, I just actually see in the Wikipedia, it says by the time the streak reached 13 games, it started receiving attention in the New York city press. Dan Daniel made note of the run on May 28th in the New York world telegram. Jack Smith mentioned it after 14. So at least it got mentioned as early as 13. And then it really seems like May 30th when they had a, the Yankees played the Red Sox in a doubleheader at Fenway. And by early June, when it was up to 20, it seemed like it really did start getting, you know, quite a bit of attention and coverage. And I'm sure the fact that it was happening in the newspaper capital of the world played a big role in it. Yeah. And this was the, the very much the heyday of New York newspapers, you know, just again, it's hard to divorce from world events, but it was not the, 
world climate or U.S. political climate where newspapers were going to be, if one industry was getting better, you know, was was strong, it was the newspaper industry, both world history, everything with the depression and, and all that, and then sports, and especially in New York where you had, you know, the New York Yankees, who by then were the New York Yankees. Whether they won the pennant or not, they were a a everyday story. And DiMaggio had slumped to start the season. Now, by the time of this game, it looks like he was hitting 304, but he had slumped to start a season. The team had slumped to start the season, and this kind of gets them going. And I want to look here. They, they're 14 and 15. They win the next game. They lose the game after that, but they, they do sort of start a winning streak uh, within the first couple weeks of DiMaggio. And I think it's hard to sort of quantify. I guess the only thing I can think of maybe in our lifetimes was the McGuire Sosa home run chase in 98, where this was something that was in the public mind every single day. Robert Creamer, who wrote a great book called Baseball in 1941 that I used pretty heavily in preparation for this episode, talks about how and maybe this is somewhat apocryphal, but there's probably some truth about about how he had a friend who was somewhere out in the, you know, the Midwest in the Dakotas or something somewhere. And, you know, he'd be sitting at a, you know, in a, in a bar in a saloon and, you know, some rancher or something would come in and say to the bartender with the newspaper, did he get one yesterday? This really was a huge event in the conscience of the American people, the consciousness of the American people for two months in the summer of 1941. Looks like in, uh, said, uh, I'm looking here, uh, you got to double it to right center to bring, the, bring it to 27 games, which brought him within one hit of the Yankee record. The next game he got to 28 with a homer, which tied to the record for the longest Yankee hitting streak held by Earl Combs and Roger Peckinpah. And then that was on June 16th. He tied the Yankee record with a fifth inning double. So obviously at the time they didn't know it, but that was the halfway point of the record. He's tying the Yankee franchise record. And then right after that, he gets into some close games against the White Sox and against the St. Louis Browns, where it looks like he might, you know, take the collar, you know, because if you, if you're in a situation like this, if you don't get a hit in your first two at bats, people start to think, all right, well, he may only get one more at bat. He may only get two more at bats. There was a game against the White Sox here where he hit a ground ball to Luke Appling, the shortstop, and the ball kind of hopped and they ruled it a hit instead of an error, which was his only hit. So, you know, I guess there was a little bit of controversy there. That was game 30. So, you know, there were close calls throughout, obviously a lot of this. And like I said, I'll talk about his numbers at the end. He, it's not like he had 58 hits in 56 games. He, you know, had plenty of multi-hit games and, and all that. But, um, you know, there were bound to be some close calls. And that was one of them where, you know, maybe it's an error, maybe it's not, but they called it a hit. So it's a hit. The modern day record was George Sisler, who had 41 in sometime in the 20s, I would imagine. And so at a doubleheader in D.C. on June 29th against the Senators, DiMaggio both ties and breaks Sisler's record with his 41st and 42nd game. Andrew, you'll appreciate this. The 
this is another great book called Streak and this, Joe DiMaggio in the Summer of 41 by Michael Seidel. He said, the streak vied for space with other front page stories. Roosevelt still brooding over Stalin's enormous Lend-Lease request while dedicating the brand new Hyde Park Presidential Library, a new draft call-up of 900,000 men, plans for massive increases in fighter and bomber airplane production, astonishing casualty reports from the Russian front, the death of the former premier of Poland, and world-renowned concert pianist Ignacy Jan Paderewski, the arrest of 29 suspected Nazi fifth columnists in American cities, and a broadcast on the war by Pope Pius XII from Vatican City. Yeah, he did a good job with that. In which he also attacked women's short skirts. <laughs> so those are just some of the other items. He's known for his adroit handling of issues around World War II. Yeah, and that's, and that's what I was talking about earlier. It's like, I think in modern sort of nostalgic history, people like to make it seem like, oh, the United States was this like... This is all months before Pearl Harbor, and there's these massive increases in fighter jets and drafts, you know, drafting of, of young men into, the, into the, the military. It's like we like to pretend that it was this sudden, you know, December 7th changed everything. And in some cases it did, but anything that we're talking about in sports goes on in this backdrop of this massive war in Europe that everyone knows to some degree is going to involve us sooner rather than later so in the first game he makes it to the sixth inning without getting a hit they're facing a knuckleballer for the senators a guy by the name of dutch leonard and so on a 1-1 count leonard throws a knuckleball no he tries he's he's a knuckleball pitcher but he tries to throw a fastball by dimaggio dimaggio hits a double to the wall and that is what ties him with sisler with 41 games in between those two games, DiMaggio uh, reemerges from the clubhouse in Washington, and he, I believe this is when he discovered that his bat had been stolen. That's so, right. And they talk about that in the Ken Burns where his, it's interesting to think now, I mean, guys have bats they prefer, but you see so many bats get broken and things to think a guy of having one bat that if he loses, it's a big deal. Yeah, and it, I'm, I'm pulling up. There's a, there's a biography that was written about 20 years ago that a lot of people are probably familiar with called Joe DiMaggio, A Hero's Life. It was written by Richard Ben Kramer. To say it is not a flattering portrait of DiMaggio is probably an understatement, but it does, in addition to sort of tearing down the DiMaggio myth and showing how, how troubled he could be in his personal life, it also is a really good, a really good baseball book, and it talks about DiMaggio comes out of the clubhouse and he sees Tommy Henrik uh, swinging one of his bats, and he that that Henrik had previously borrowed, and he goes up to me and says, goes up to Henrik and says, Tommy, you got one of my ball bats, and Tommy says, No, this isn't the one that I'd been using, and he rips it out of Henrik's hand, and he realizes it's not the same one, and he. You know, he goes around for some whatever reason he called it his ball bat. And so later in the game, he has a ball that he hits and it doesn't go to where he thinks it would be. So he says, if I had had my own ball bat, that would have been a hit. But eventually he does get a single in the seventh inning of the second game of the doubleheader in what would probably be his last chance. And that gets him to the 42 uh, where he takes the lead on Sisler. 
and then I don't know if you have anything else to add there, but I, I do want to talk a little bit about the missing bat because it's been, it's been mythologized a little bit. And we, we, I just wanted to say, cause you're mentioning, you know, him kind of snapping at a teammate and, you know, certainly we could do whole episodes on DiMaggio and his personality, his interactions. And it's another one where he probably gets re- a complicated guy probably gets reduced a little too much, but there is some truth to it. But the pressure this guy's under here has to be, I mean, there's been movies about, you know, Roger Maris trying to break Babe Ruth's streak and certainly Babe Ruth looms large and all that, but Roger Maris can have an 0 for 3 day or an 0 for 4 day. This was every day. He had to get himself in a position. Probably You, you figure by the time it got to 20, 24 or 25, he started caring about it at least, probably earlier than that. That's every day he's got to get himself up to go play baseball and get a base hit, at least one. And if you don't get a hit in your first at bat, it's not, you know, each at bat, it starts to weigh on you more in addition to having to play center field and win games for your team as well. So, and he develops ulcers. He really is, like you said, just the day in, day out stress from a guy who was probably sort of a little bit high stress to begin with. This is really, you know, this really takes an effect on him physically, but he just goes out and he keeps playing and he keeps winning. He, I just, there's just a couple more games I want to talk about here, sort of in the, in the procession of things in Boston against the Red Sox. He hits a home run to make his 45 number 45 to pass Keeler. It's funny. I hadn't realized this my whole life, but when I read the Kramer book, I realized apparently the Keeler streak was something that was kind of discovered later it was discovered after the fact not after the fact but it was not once this the keeler streak was not discovered until dimaggio had already started on his streak and everybody thought sisler was the number and then sort of at some point in the 20s or 30s they said oh no there's this other record too willie keeler in 1897 hitting 44 games in a row yeah, the, the, again, this is Wikipedia, but it says, although the press ran stories on DiMaggio passing Sisler's modern-day record and the achievement received fan acclaim, newspapers had discussed the longer mark set by Keeler in some prior accounts, and DiMaggio had been made aware of Keeler's run by a reporter, which I'm sure his response to that was pleasant. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so maybe he was at least aware by the time he even got to Sisler. Before we talk about the night it was stopped, we should talk about the bat real quick because it is, it is eventually recovered. The sort of sanitized story is that a young fan or a fan, maybe not a young fan, but a fan sees this and they decide they're going to sort of go on a quest and they help find the bat. Turns out it was more likely some of folks who may have been a little bit associated with the mob. And that was another thing that Richard Ben Kramer discovered in his in his book or wrote about, I should say in his book, his biography of DiMaggio about how the traditional story about how maybe this was, you know, just some benevolent fan that chances are there were some connected guys who were involved in trying to track down this bat. So a little bit of a stretch to think that the most powerful Italian American in the country who played in New York city in the early forties had help from the mafia. I personally think that's slander. <laughs> well, the funny thing too is that they, I think the story is, and, and folks listening maybe can double check this. I think they found it in Jersey. And I had always thought that they must have been stolen in New York if it was found in Jersey, but I, I think it was actually stolen in DC. 
So, yeah, no, a very interesting, very interesting side note there. So he finally loses the streak at 56 against the Cleveland Indians. And I have the date here. If you just bear with me for a second here. And I believe it, while you're looking, it was the all-star break happened late in the streak. And I believe he got a hit in the all-star game as well. But that but one didn't officially count. I'm aware of that. <laughs> That's from the Ken Burns thing, too. It's like in July, you got to hit in the All-Star game. But that one didn't officially count as if anybody who is watching that knows anything. Hour 11 of the Ken Burns baseball thing is not aware that hits in the All-Star game don't count. But he did get one in the All-Star game. So he faces two Cleveland Indians pitchers on July 14th in an effort to make it to 57. He, he's shut down by two pitchers by the name of Al Smith. Uh, kind of interesting that he starts the streak against a guy named Smith and Edgar Smith for the White Sox. And then 56 games later, he loses it in part to a guy named Al Smith for the Indians. I believe it was on the 17th of July, according to this. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm seeing July 14th in this, in this book, but I could be reading it wrong. Right. I don't know. No, you're right. July 17th. And he he loses it on two really good plays at third base by Ken Keltner, who's a otherwise not very well-known Cleveland Indians third baseman. Keltner later says that he was afraid when he left the game that he would run into a disgruntled Yankee fan. He said, quote, you know, Joe had a lot of Italian friends in Ohio. And then DiMaggio's last chance of the night came when he hit against reliever Jim Bagme in the eighth inning with one out and the bases loaded, and the Yankees are ahead 4-1. to one. He hits a ball that takes a nasty hop, and it is fielded by Boudreaux. He hits into a double play, and he is just barely out at first. Not that it would have mattered because it wouldn't have been a hit. Anyway, the Indians score two runs at one point to make it 4-3. to three. And so going into the top of the ninth, there's if the Indians score another run, then the Yankees could potentially have DiMaggio come to the plate again, but the Indians are shut down by the Yankees and the crowd lets out a collective groan, even though their team has just won the game. DiMaggio very famously goes out by himself. He borrows money from Phil Rizzuto because he'd forgotten his own wallet. He tells Rizzuto that if he had gotten a hit, he would have gotten a pretty sweet endorsement from Heinz ketchup and their 57 flavors. They were, he said the Heinz 57 people have been following me around. I would have made a bunch of money if I'd gotten a hit tonight. And that is the end of perhaps the most storied streak in the history of American sports. The way Rizzuto tells that story is good. It's much different than the sort of cartoonish picture you hear of Rizzuto a lot of times. And Rizzuto, Rizzuto benefited greatly from that cartoonish persona. Don't get me wrong, but basically, I guess that night, you know, the press is going on and everybody's leaving the locker room and he just, he tells Rizzuto like, Hey, hang around. And then, you know, finally the two of them leave and they're walking back towards the hotel or whatever. And they're getting ready to, there's like a bar and DiMaggio starts to head in and Rizzuto starts to go with him. And DiMaggio basically just tells him like, no, I, I, I want to go in by myself. And, and Rizzuto just says like, Oh, okay. And you know, like you said, gives them money or whatever. And then, uh, you know, and then the nice coded of the story is that starting the next day, I can never remember, was it 16 or 17? 16? I think it was 16. He goes on a 16-game hitting streak. It's, starting the next day, he hits in another 16 straight games. You know, 
let me, I'm just, I want to pull up the numbers here on, on his numbers during the streak just to really hammer home. Yeah. It's a 56 game inning streak. You can achieve that getting one hit in 56, you know, in each of 56 games and not doing much else. And it's still an incredible, incredible performance, but just to hammer home what he did during that streak and just bear with me one second while I pull it up during the 56 games that encompassed his hitting streak, he had 91 base hits. So 91 hits in 56 games closer to two a game than to one a game, 223 at bats, 408 average 55 RBIs. If 15 home runs, 56 runs scored. So he scored a run for every game that he had that streak and then in the final 11 games of the streak, so just in case you wondered, oh, is it wearing on him, which I'm sure it was emotionally, last 11 games of the streak, 545 average, 24 hits in 44 at-bats, faced the Browns and White Sox 12 times each during the streak, highest batting average against the Athletics, hitting 524 against them. Before it started, the Yankees were five and a half games out of first place. By the time it ended, the Yankees were 56 and 27 and had a seven game lead. The Yankees record during the streak, which includes two games that were considered ties. Do you know this number? I don't know. Okay, so 50, 56 games knocked two off for ties. So 54 games during the streak. You want to guess what their record was in those 54 official games? 38 and 16. 41 and 13. Wow. So just, you know, so this was an individual feat that also lifted the rest of the team. All right. So why don't we talk a little bit about, well, before we do that, I just, I would note that nobody has come close to the 56. Nobody has the, 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 the only guy who's come even close, Pete Rose in the eighties and early eighties, I think it was late seventies, early eighties had 44. So he tied Keeler. It's also interesting that DiMaggio, when he was in the minors, when he was with the San Francisco Seals of the Pacific Coast League, had a 61-game hitting streak. So two of the three longest hitting streaks in all of the history of American professional baseball are held by Joe DiMaggio. There's a guy named Joe Wilhoyt who played with the Wichita team in the Western League. He had a 69-game hitting streak in 1919. And then the next two are DiMaggio. So you think about it. Really impressive. The guy, if you even if you include all minors, everything else, two of the three longest hitting streaks in baseball history are by Joe DiMaggio, which is really damn impressive. Only personal story I have on this, and I'll be honest, as a Yankee fan, and Joe DiMaggio is my brother's favorite player since we were kids, like historically. Anytime anybody starts to get, and it's been a long time, and it probably will be a really long time, the way basically guys play now anytime anybody starts to get in the 30s and you start hearing about it i don't root for them to do it i i, I want the maggio to keep that record and luckily nobody's gotten that close the only personal story i have with it is when i was in college i want to say this would have been the beginning of the 06 season jimmy rollins of the phillies and i went to college in philadelphia jimmy rollins had ended the 05 season with like a 36 game hitting streak and there was a lot of debate that off season about well what if he does it but it's over two seasons does that count etc cetera, etc cetera. and he ended up only getting like two more hits the beginning of the 06 season and, and petered out at I think 38 but I was at opening day that year 
Mm-hmm. It was a miserable day in Philadelphia. It was pouring rain. They were playing the Cardinals. And he came up, and there was like a big you know, video package about his hitting streak that was active. And he did get a hit in that game. And like I said, I don't think it made it through the first weekend of the season. But I remember I was like, I, you know, I, I didn't have a rooting interest in the Phillies against the Cardinals, but I was like, um, I don't want him to get a hit. Like, I, mm-hmm. even though he's still 20 away and I had no particular problem with him, I was like, I, I want him to, to, you know, make out every time he comes up. So, All right. So we've done, talked about DiMaggio. We've talked about the Dodgers. We'll get to the World Series in a minute, but we should probably talk about Ted Williams as well because he's sort of the third story of this 1941 baseball season. Absolutely. And you mentioned, you know, Williams was in what his third year at this point. Yep. He debuted in 39, 30. Yeah. So he's, he's born in 1918. So he'd be 23 years old in the, or turned 23 years old in this season, pretty quickly established himself as the lead dog on this Red Sox team. And as the years going on, he's, making a run at hitting 400. And there's interesting parallels too, between the Red Sox of 41 and the Dodgers. Tom Yawkey had bought the team in sometime in the thirties and much like the Dodgers, it had been a pretty long drought for the Red Sox. They hadn't won a pennant, you know, they hadn't won a world series or a pennant from since 1918, but Yawkey comes in and he, you know, he does bring in some players. He brings in Jimmy Fox. He brings in Lefty Grove, some Hall of Famers. And so even though they would not ever, they wouldn't get to the World Series but once in 46, the Red Sox are kind of starting to turn the corner in the late 30s, early 40s. And obviously Williams is a big part of that. Yeah. And, and you mentioned right away sort of his personality was not one where he was going to endear himself to the fans or the media really at any point in his career. And I think the feeling was was mutual from from Williams, but even begrudgingly, it was like, okay, obviously this guy is a generational talent, and nobody was really aware, obviously, of the fact that within, you know, he was about to lose a bunch of years of his career to being a top fighter pilot in the war. But as it's as the year is going on, and it's clear he's at least going to flirt with this thing, and especially when DiMaggio's streak ends right after the All Star break, so and the American League pennant is not particularly in doubt. So what else is there to focus on? But whether this guy can do it, and it's another everyday thing. It's not like DiMaggio's streak where every day he's got to get a hit. But if you're going to hit 400, you can't go too many days without getting a hit. So it's something you can track every day. And Williams sort of his first big moment of the year is in the all-star game. He hits a ninth inning home run uh, walk. I'm sorry. Didn't count. It didn't count in the all-star game. (laughs) It didn't count for his stats. I'm doing what you just did to me. (laughs) He hits a game winning home run in the all-star game. And I believe I'm not 100% about this, but I believe DiMaggio might have been on base. Let me just look this up here. I don't have that in front of me, but the All-Star game was a really big deal in those days. And the National League had had a 5-2 lead, and then the American League had battled back, and Williams hits this two-run home run to win the game. And, oh, no, it was. DiMaggio was on base. DiMaggio reaches on an error in the 41 all-star game and then Williams hits a home run to win the game and so 
much like DiMaggio, Williams is really starting to kind of build on his reputation to where he's becoming the legendary player that he would once be. The team is good, but not great. It's funny because the reputation of Williams was that he was kind of a jerk, but it turns out as a teammate, all of his teammates loved him. You know, David Halberstam later wrote a book about the friendship between, between Williams and Bobby Doerr and Dominic DiMaggio. So Williams really sort of beloved by his teammates and he hovers around this 400 number for most of the summer. And then he hits a little bit of a slump and going into the last game of the double header in Philadelphia, his average drops to something like three, nine, 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 five, five or something like that. And so even though he technically would have been a 400 hitter after the season ended. Because it would have rounded up. It would have rounded up, but there would always been that sort of, well, you know, he was just under 400. So as he had throughout the season, Williams plays, he goes, I think he goes six for eight in this double header against the Philadelphia athletics. And he becomes 80 years later. Nobody else has hit for a 400 average in either league of major league baseball. Yeah, and I think it was something like after the third hit, it was clear it was over. And even Cronin asked him going into the second game, like, you want to sit down? You've got it. And he was like, no, I don't want to, you know, again, he probably would have had to go like 0 for 6 in the second game to knock him down. But he, he told him he wanted to play and he played and then got even more hits, which drove his average even further up. Yeah, and he ends with a 406 average. Yep, said he decided to play in both games to make it completely legit, legitimate. Six for eight to leave his average at four oh six. Last time any player won the uh, last time any player, and that's that's not a record anybody's going to approach. I mean, unless the game of unless the way the game is played drastically changes from the way it's played now, do you really see anybody approaching that record anytime soon? Probably not. The thing is, you have to to have a high enough average that you can withstand a slump. Yeah, you have to start hot and finish hot. You know, you can't, yeah. You got to be hitting 420 at some point. And, you know, after the All-Star game, you can't, you can't be, you know, because a lot of times you'll see it with these guys and it'll be like, well, so-and-so's hitting, you you know, I think Tony Gwynn one year. It's like he's hitting 395, you know, could he make it to 400? It's like, yeah, he could have a bad week and he could be at 380. Yeah, he's got to have a week where he hits 700 to to do it. And especially now, like, say what you will, but batting average isn't considered as important as it used to be, and guys walk a lot more and and strike out a lot more. So, no, it's it's unlikely that it's unlikely that that's even a goal for most people who are in baseball anymore or a fantasy, let alone something that somebody's going to seriously contend for but again i I don't want to say never because who knows how the game is played and rules changes a generation from now but right now it doesn't certainly does not seem to be on the horizon and williams they say that for and this is from the great biography by lee montville of ted williams says that in the clubhouse afterwards he was a different williams for the first time since i've known him he liked to have other ball players around him to take pleasure in their praise and backslapping a year before, a similar feat would have revealed him a, a strutting, smirking braggart. Here, instead, he strove honestly and so very earnestly to make himself one of the gang. And that's the crowning achievement of Williams' career. He, he never really has any 
big moments. He makes the one world series that they kind of heartbreakingly lose in seven games. But there are a lot of big DiMaggio moments other than the streak, but Williams legacy is different. Williams is a guy who just hit the team. Oftentimes wasn't very good. Sometimes they were decent. A couple times they were pretty good, but he just hit from 1939 all the way to 1960 with the exception of four or five years for the war. He or for the wars, I should say between world war two and Korea. He's a guy who just hit his whole career. I think he hit 388 in like 1958 or something like that. He always just hit. I think he had one career year where he was under 300. Yeah, and he said, you know, as a young guy, he wanted to be the greatest hitter who ever lived, and he has at least a legitimate claim to that title at this point. And it, it again goes back to something I've talked about before, which is like, it's you can't just reduce a guy's career to whether he won the championship. Obviously, 46, and he was gets partially criticized for 46 because the Cardinals employed that shift against him and had a bad series, and that was the only chance he had. But the reason that was the only chance he had was not his fault. It was a lot of the people around him and the climate of the fact that they were playing it one out of every five years. The Yankees didn't win the pennant if you were lucky. I guess we should also just kind of talk real quick about the MVP that year because DiMaggio wins the MVP on the strength of the 56-game hitting streak. A lot of people have considered that a media thing, you know, being in New York, being on the Yankees. It's not like he was all that jovial a guy either, so it's not like, well, he was nice to the media and Williams was a jerk, but hard to argue that a guy who hit 406 should not have been the MVP. And I think what happens the following year kind of lends credence to that, given that in 1942, Williams wins the Triple Crown and he loses the MVP race to Joe Gordon, the Yankees second baseman. Nice player, Hall of Famer. Ted Williams won the Triple Crown and finished second in the MVP voting, which shows that the writers really did kind of hesitate to vote for him. Yeah, and I guess just while we're talking about these two guys, and I know we want to move on, but we should at least mention sort of, and it's another one of those stories that I've just, you know, every time the Yankees and Red Sox, or not every time, but like every third time the Yankees and Red Sox play on national TV, we're going to have to hear this story, so I'm almost tired of hearing it. But we should at least mention the two of them playing in ballparks that are probably custom-made for the other one, especially definitely DiMaggio. And there's always the talk of the, the, you know, the two GMs or presidents or whatever. I think that was McPhail and Yawkey would probably be the most. Sitting down and, and drinking and trying to figure out, apparently agreeing. To, I've heard a million versions of this story, which part of it makes me wonder if it's true at all. But just kind of one night drinking, coming up in principle with a deal to trade the two. And then the next morning, them both waking up and going like, yeah, this 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 is not going to work. <laughs> It would have been interesting, too, because DiMaggio would have played right next to his brother. I always wondered, did they say what year it was? I don't have that in front of me. I don't know. I mean, you figure, well, here's the question. McPhail didn't come to the Yankees until like the mid-40s. So maybe it was post-war. Maybe it was like 47 around then. Here's what I will say. If they had done it in 1947, it would have been a good move. The Yankees. Oh, yeah, because Williams played until 1960, and DiMaggio retired in 51. And 
you know, you, they would have had, can you, I mean, it would have been hard for the Yankees to do much better in the 1950s, but yeah, can you imagine you man- Mickey Mantle next to, can you imagine a lineup for the Yankees in the 19, 1954 with Ted Williams, Yogi Berra, and Mickey Mantle? Well, that's an also the version of that story I've heard is that the next day, the Red Sox decided we need you to throw in the catcher. We need you to throw him in as well. Berra. Yeah, but again, I don't, it's one of those stories where it's like, I'm sure something happened. I'm sure those two guys had drinks together at some point, but people just add and add and add onto the story to the point where you, but it does seem certain that at least at some point there was some sort of discussion, regardless of how serious it was about, hey, it would make a lot of sense if we traded these guys. Yeah, I think that does. And I think it was probably a talk even publicly beyond just the two owners. And look, here's the thing. Williams is a much better player than DiMaggio. DiMaggio's numbers, I'm sorry? Historically, yes. Yeah. Well, well, other than historically, what would it be? Right now. Well, no, they're both. At the moment, they're both dead. Well, DiMaggio's <laughs> got a much better head on his shoulders these days. <laughs> you can feel free to cut that out. <laughs> no, it's fine. I don't think. I mean, it's a pretty common thing to joke about these days. That's where I was going that whole time. <laughs> Hey, and look, unfortunately, Williams, you know, honestly, both their guys, they're DiMaggio's post-baseball life and Williams, Williams led a very honorable post-baseball life, but, you know, the, the sort of the weirdness surrounding his death and the the frozenness, both ended up having sons who were like total screw-ups who took advantage of them and tried to live off their money and everything, but... Yeah, I do think, you know, Williams is probably a better player than DiMaggio. So let's talk about the World Series real quick. And I want to start with a little story. After the Dodgers won the pennant, I think they were in Boston in September of 41. And most, if not all, train travel in those days was still done by... I'm sorry, most, if not all, travel was still done by train. And so the... Dodgers are making their way back home and they're they're having a huge party on the train. They've just won the pennant and they're pulling into to Manhattan and DeRocher. I've read two different versions of the story. He was either worried that some of his players would get off at 125th street or he's worried that too many people would get on the train at 125th street and his players would just be mobbed. Either way, he tells the conductor don't stop the train at 125th street. Wait till we get to grand central. Unfortunately, Larry McPhail is waiting for the train at grand (laughs) at 125th street. The train passes by Larry McPhail. McPhail finds out that DeRocher was the reason it didn't stop. He fires DeRocher right before the World Series and then rehires him a day or so later in time for the World Series. Yeah, yeah, it's, that's probably the, for the best. <laughs> <laughs> so the Yankees beat the Dodgers in 41 in the World Series in five games. The turning point of the series is game four. The Dodgers go in to the ninth inning ahead of the Yankees four to three ready to tie the series. The batting champ P 
Pete Reeser hits a home run, the two-run home run that scores both himself and Dixie Walker, who was on base. And so they go in with a 4-3 lead to the bottom of the ninth, and or it might have been the top of the ninth, but in, into the ninth inning. I don't know who the home team was, but into the ninth inning. In which game? Game four this one? Game four. So the Dodgers are getting ready to tie the series. Yeah, game four would have been at Ebbets. Game four is at Ebbets Field. Two outs, nobody on. Hugh Casey, the relief pitcher, is pitching the guy who was often suspected of doctoring the ball on occasion. He strikes out Tommy Henrik to win the game. Mickey Owen, who's the catcher and is widely known as one of the better defensive catchers in baseball at the time, lets the ball go past him. And in, the, in this account that I'm reading, it says that a lot of people have said that Mickey Owen just dropped the ball. He didn't just drop it. He let it get past him and go all the way to the backstop. Henrik reaches first base on one of the oldest rules in baseball, which is that if you strike out and the catcher doesn't catch the ball, you can run to first. Henrik goes to first. DiMaggio singles. Charlie Keller doubles. Bill Dickey walks. Joe Gordon doubles and the Yankees win the game seven to four and then go on to clinch the world series the next day in game five. And then that is sort of the end of it that I think 42, the Dodgers come close to winning and then you have the war and then you have the new regime with, with branch Ricky comes in Jackie Robinson and all that stuff. And so that's sort of the, the only shining moment for those, 41 Dodgers and obviously it's hard to look at one game and say well what would have happened if you know that hadn't happened but had they tied the series at two who knows what would have happened yep and and like you said that rule is a, a rule that has been around for a very long time probably has been around since not catching the third strike was a much more frequent occurrence and that's why it needed to be written in there it seems archaic now. It was archaic then. I'm not saying it's a bad rule. I'm just saying it's a rule that dates back to when guys caught the ball with their bare hands. Yep. You know, so yeah, it's it's obviously hard to think about, well, what would have happened in a series that happened 80 years ago that nobody alive really saw happen unless you were literally in the stadium. But yeah, it would have been two to two. And game five is in Brooklyn. And who knows? Now, obviously, the Yankees win game five, and that's the end of the series. You have to think the Yankees probably win the series just based on sort of history. But, um, yeah, it definitely goes down as one of the all-time World Series sort of historical anomalies, then compounded by a furthering of the probably the death knell for McPhail, ultimately, which is going in after his team loses game four of the World Series. Doesn't he get drunk and threaten to trade the entire team to St. Louis? I know I've heard that. I don't know if that actually happened. I've also heard that in 42... It sounds good. I'm sorry? Let's pretend it did. It sounds good. I also heard that in 42, he sort of dramatically... In 1942, he sort of dramatically quit baseball to become an officer in the military during the war. So he was gone by 42. And then they brought in Branch Rickey and Branch Rickey, who had beaten 
I'm sorry, Branch Rickey, who had built that whole Cardinals franchise of the 30s and early 40s, then goes on to do the same thing largely for the Dodgers in the 40s and 50s. So I don't know what truth there is. McPhail ends up being part of a group that buys the Yankees, along with Del Webb and Dan Topping. And, and then, then when they beat the Ricky DeRocher, or DeRocher suspended, but then when they beat the Ricky Robinson Dodgers in 47, he gets entirely blackout drunk. I think he punches either Webb or Topping during the celebration in 47. Yeah, him getting pushed aside out of the Yankees right as that next leg of that dynasty is starting is another interesting story for another episode. Yeah, I think they make him sell the team, and he's just he's just a combative guy. And then his son, Lee McPhail. In the middle of getting drunk and punching people, he was an officer in the military during our, <laughs> during our most important military conflict in the history of the country. Well, that was the that was the that was the quote from the Ken Burns thing. It said, "With, with and I'm going to maybe not get it right word for word, but with no drinks, he was brilliant. With one drink, he was a genius. With two drinks, he was insane." And rarely did he stop at one. <laughs> I've heard that. So, so that's the 1941 baseball season, and it definitely ripples out for years, whether you're talking about the Dodgers, whether you're talking about McPhail and DeRocher, whether you're talking about the legacies of DiMaggio. It's, it's, it's Joe McCarthy's... It's kind of the last full... I guess, by, I guess in 42, the Yankees were basically the same team. They didn't lose many guys to military service until 43. Most teams didn't. The Yankees win a World Series with Joe McCarthy in 43, but that's a, that's a totally different team. That's guys, other than Dickey, who, for whatever reason, didn't serve in the military. Was um, he too old? I mean, was he... You know, he might have served in like 45. He might have served one year. But for whatever reason, maybe he had the, the military draft was so strange in those years because if you had dependents or, if, you know, whatever, there, there were ways you could get out of it. But Dickey stays on the team longer than the other team. I think he actually, Dickey wins an MVP maybe in 43. Let me look up Dickey's stats real quick. I feel like with the war years, every year from 42 through 44, the like level of plague gets progressively worse. Yeah. Because really by 1944, it was like, if you had both your legs, they wanted you. And I think you're right about Dickie. He didn't, he didn't go in until 44 and he was 36 in 1943. And so he missed 44, he missed 45. And then by 46, he, he just played part of part of the season. Then he retired. So that's the last season of the, 30s, 40s Yankees team of DiMaggio, Dickey, Gomez, Ruffing, all those guys. And so by the time you get out of the war, you got a new Yankees, you got a new Dodgers team starting to develop. You got, you know, new guys on the Red Sox. So sort of the last great summer for baseball in 1941. Before we move on from baseball, should we at least mention the Negro Leagues in 40, uh, 41? We should, and I. Why don't you go ahead? I have some stuff on that too, but um, yeah, go ahead I, with what I you have. Have a whole lot other than you know, basically the the Homestead Grays win the Negro National League, the Kansas City Monarchs win the Negro American League. This is the next year is when the real what you consider the Negro League World Series begins. So I, I don't have too much other than just you know I felt like we should mention mention it. Josh Gibson is sort of in his. Prime is heyday, and I guess you could say the same with Satchel Page as well. Actually, though, Gibson is not on the Grays that year. Is he not? He had gone to Mexico for a couple of years to play. 
See, I saw that he was on the Mexican team, but I thought that was just like part. I didn't realize that was the whole year. I thought it was maybe in addition to. So obviously I'm wrong, but I, I thought maybe that was like a winter thing. He absconded to Mexico for a couple of years, including that year. And so the leader of the Grays that year was really Buck Leonard. And I should also note that even though Homestead is a town in the suburbs of Pittsburgh, at some point in the around this time, the Grays were starting to play more and more games at Griffith Stadium in D.C. And by the early 40s, they were just as much a D.C. team as they were a Pittsburgh team. So, you know, one of the and, and the Nationals, the, you know, the Washington Nationals, the, you know, the, the current day D.C. team, they do a lot to honor the Homestead Grays. And by this point, they were very much a D.C. team. So they're led by Leonard. Some people say that at the age of 37, this might have actually been Satchel Page's best year. He kind of returns to the Kansas City Monarchs. Page had been with the Monarchs and not with the Monarchs and back and forth like Gibson and a lot of others. He went to Latin America a lot. And he's one of the two Hall of Fame pitchers on the Monarchs. He's joined by a guy by the name of Hilton Smith, who's also a Hall of Famer. They lead the Monarchs to the Negro American League, which is sort of the, the Negro League's Western Conference pennant. And so much like the, you know, the White League's, this is the last year before a lot of these Negro League guys go into military service. And then by the time they come back in 46, you got, you know, at least a few black players starting to be signed by the by the major or the minor leagues. So much like for the American and National League, this is kind of the last year before a change for the Negro League. So you're right. That that also is worth mentioning. So, you know, that was just, I figured, you know, since the last time we did like a specific year, 1920, we talked a lot about the founding of the Negro Leagues. I felt like we should at least, you know, doing this whole thing on baseball, at least mention the Negro Leagues who were obviously playing at a very high level at that point. All right. So there's some big stories that we want to talk about. I think the NFL season, I think might be good to close with the NFL season. Yeah. Chronologically and and world history wise, it makes the most sense. And there's, there's some Joe Lewis stuff we want to get to, and there's some horse racing stuff. So what I'm going to propose as sort of like a halftime palate cleanser is, and maybe you don't have any, I think I just have one or two. Do you have any sort of like little, um, beyond those three things, do you have any sort of little things you'd like to mention? Sure, I do. So what I have is, first of all, in the NHL, I have... This was, there were seven teams in the NHL and, and we can do an episode one day, although we'll probably need somebody who knows what they're talking about to talk about how the original six is really kind of a fallacy. There were other teams in the NHL at various points, but 1940-41 was actually the last year that there were more than, or excuse me, that this was the second to last year that there were more than seven, or there were more than six teams in the league. You had what became known as the original six, the Boston Bruins, the Toronto Maple Leafs, Detroit Red Wings, New York Rangers, Chicago Blackhawks, Montreal Canadiens, and then the New York Americans, who the story I actually want to talk about, which is more interesting, is that the next year, that seventh team, the New York Americans, for the 1941-42 season, decided they were going to move to Brooklyn, renamed themselves the Brooklyn Americans, could not find a suitable venue in Brooklyn, <laughs> stayed at Madison Square Garden as the Brooklyn Americans finished in last again, folded at the end of the year, and starting in 42-43, the NHL began what you consider the original six era, which lasted until the 60s. 
During this year in 1940-41, which we're talking about, the Boston Bruins win the Stanley Cup, which is looking more and more likely like it's not going to happen this year. What's um, the score? I'm not. Uh, I don't Island have it in front. Scored to make a take a four to one lead late in the second period. So the Boston Bruins won the Stanley Cup. They beat the Detroit Red Wings in the Stanley Cup Finals. The Bruins at one point in the season won 23 straight games. So that was my uh, my NHL point. In the other in- sort of interesting nugget I have here in uh, college football, Minnesota wins the national championship. Bruce Smith is a running back for Minnesota. He wins the Heisman. The real interesting thing I have in college football in 1941, October 16th of 1941 was the first time that the, in, the, in a game between in Youngstown, Ohio, the Youngstown State University coach, Dwight Bede or BD, it was the first time in a game against Oklahoma City University that penalty flags were used in a football game. Yep, I guess before that, refs had used either whistles or little horns to signify a penalty on the play. And said, so this is an article I'm reading. Uh, it says, from YoungstownUniversitySports.com. It says, before the introduction of the penalty flags, the officials used horns and whistles to signal a penalty. This made it difficult for fans and the media to know there was an infraction because they couldn't hear it. Bead or BD said, I always disliked the fish horn signal, figured it was a nuisance, irritating to the ears. BD came up with the idea, had his wife sew it together. His wife, Irma, was later known as the Betsy Ross of football, which I doubt she was actually known as that. He asked her to make a flag that was bright red with white stripes, and he went up before the game and said, do me a favor, boys. Instead of using the horns, try dropping these flags on violations. The fans will never hear the horns. Besides, it's just an experiment. So that was October of 1941 in a college football game between Youngstown State and Oklahoma City. The first penalty flags were used in football, and that was I thought that was very interesting. I mentioned Minnesota won the NCAA championship. In football, in college basketball, Wisconsin won. This would have only been the third year of the NCAA tournament. Wisconsin beat Washington State in the uh, championship game. It's the only time Wisconsin has won an NCAA championship. Long Island won the NIT. The NBA was not yet founded, but Oshkosh won the NBL. And in the ABL, the Philadelphia Spas, S-P-H-A-S, won. Mm Mm-hmm. That's what I have for sort of, and then I have some stuff on individual sports, uh, like tennis and golf, which I'll touch on in a second, but that's what I have for a lot of the team sports. The Philadelphia Spas, I believe, there's been some, I think there was a book written about them over the last couple of years. They were a Jewish team, I believe. Okay. Uh, yeah, and- that probably, I mean, I think the way that's capitalized, I'm, I think SPHA stands for something. We talked about in our episode, we talked about preliminary basketball leagues. We talked about the National Basketball League, the NBL, which is one of the two teams that eventually, or two, one of the two leagues, rather, that eventually merged. They merged with the BAA in the late 40s to form what is now the NBA. And you're right, Oshkosh was their best team. And their best player was a guy who was the league's top scorer by the name of Leroy Cowboy Edwards. A uh, six foot four inch center who had dropped out of the University of Kentucky in 1935 after an all American year to turn professional. Edwards, a strong pivot man with a devastating hook shot, was what was then called a gunner because he hated to give up the ball if a shot was possible. 
He led the NBL in its first season with 16.2 points a game. So that's Leroy Cowboy Edwards, one of the early stars of professional basketball for the Oshkosh. You're not going to convince me Leroy Cowboy Edwards was not an independent wrestler in the early 70s. I just won't won't hear it. In the Um, territories. Yeah. In mid South, yeah, yep. So that that was, um, you know, a lot of the uh, the sports in. This is what I was talking about earlier. When I'm looking up tennis, I'm like, oh, Bobby Riggs won the U.S. Open. Where are the rest of the events? Because the normal Grand Slam, at least now, is Wimbledon, which is in obviously in Britain, the French Open, and the Australian Open. And maybe it wasn't the Australian Open back then, but I'm looking and I'm like, oh yeah, they were all canceled because it wasn't the war had started everywhere else. It just hadn't started here. Bobby Riggs who had gone to be famous as one as part of the battle of the sexes with Billie Jean King in the 1970s. Yeah. So he won world war. He won the U S open in 1941. So by the seventies, he was not in his prime. Uh, No, no. In golf, Craig Wood won the masters. He was wire to wire the leader, which is only the fifth time or that's only happened five times ever to this present date that somebody has led from the first hole on he also won the u.s open that year obviously there was no british open because of uh the same that very same war indianapolis 500 floyd davis won the race it looks like this was the era of it says the winners were wilbur shaw or excuse me the winners were floyd davis and maury rose so i'm assuming that means it was the era of the uh, two guys in a car riding mechanic that's what i'm guessing he, yes it was oh no that's weird it says somebody was in the lead laps one to 72 when somebody was in the lap lead lap 73 to 200 i don't know what happened <laughs> um, and, and I'm, I'm honestly not gonna look uh, oh hang on there and floyd davis was a starting uh, oh okay so never mind <laughs> this is what happened they don't let you do this anymore floyd Did they davis- switch drivers in the middle of the race Floyd Davis was the starting driver for the number 16 car. On lap 72, Davis came in for a pit stop and was relieved by Maury Rose. Rose, even more, they don't let you do this anymore. Rose had started the race in another car (laughs) and, and dropped out early. Car owner Lou Moore was apparently unsatisfied with Davis' performance and ordered Rose to take over. Both drivers were credited as co-winners, similar to what occurred in the 1924 race. They don't let you do almost any of that anymore. (laughs) I realized I hadn't written that down, and I was like, oh, I forgot to look up the Indy 500. I'm glad I did, because that was interesting. Yeah, yeah. Did you have anything else of sort of these kind of smaller stories? No, you know, I tried to look up something interesting for professional wrestling just because that's sort of, I feel like, fits with my uh, gimmick here. This would have been the era of, uh, this was before the National Wrestling Alliance, which started in 1947, so it was still the National Wrestling Association. It was a little different. This was the era of Jim Londos, who was one of the biggest box office draws of all time. And I just did one. In March of 1941, the National Wrestling Association Championship changed hands. And would you like to take one guess as to who won the NWA heavyweight title in March of 1941? He is a name famous from other sports. Bronco Nagurski? Bronco Nagurski became the NWA World Heavyweight Champion. And interestingly enough, a couple years later in uh, 
in 43, Nagurski would come out of retirement for the Bears and play play a, a couple of, you know, he, he played at the 43 season with the Bears and won, a, won the NFL title that year, I think, actually. That sounds right, yeah. All right, so why don't we talk... Now real- done with all the, the color, yes. Why don't we talk a little bit real quick? So there was a horse racing triple crown. There was Whirl Away, who won the triple crown in 1941, and he was ridden by a name that I know, and I'm certainly not a horse racing aficionado. He was ridden by Eddie Arcaro, who's widely considered to be one of the greatest jockeys of all time. It was the first of two triple crown winners that Arcaro would ride. Seven years later, he rode Citation to a triple crown in 1948. And I just have a couple of things here. World Away wins the Kentucky Derby in two minutes and one and two fifth seconds, which is a record. It sets a record for the last quarter mile that lasts uh, until Secretariat comes along, which is Secretary is what, 73? So that that's a record that lasts for 25 years. He uh, leads the entire race of the Belmont to win the Triple Crown, and he wins the Preakness, and I believe two of the races, I don't know whether it was the Preakness and the Derby or the Preakness and the Belmont, were only a week apart. In, in this day and age, there are at least two, and I think one of them, two of them are two apart, and then two of the other two are three apart, correct? Talking three about weeks? now? Yeah. The, so the Kentucky Derby is the first Saturday in May. The... Preakness is two weeks later, and then the Belmont is three weeks after the Preakness, except for last year, but in general, yes. Okay, so they're more spread out now, so the, you wouldn't have one a week after the other like you do now, but or like you did then. But So it is worth noting. Now, there had been a number of Triple Crowns. It was much less... It was much more common in those days. So just... You had one in 30, 35, 37, 41, 43, 46, and 48. So in the course of like 19 years, less than two decades, you had seven Triple Crown winners. So it wasn't, it definitely was not the singular achievement that it is now. But Whirl Away is one of those horses, even if you're somebody like me who's not a real horse racing expert, it's one of the ones, one of the horses that you've heard of as one of the great in horse racing history, and Eddie Arcaro is considered one of the great jockeys. Mm-hmm. So that's horse racing. So that just leaves, I, I guess we should probably, I guess we should talk about a little bit about Joe Lewis next. Yeah, I tried to see if there was any boxing at a lower level that was really worth talking about. and there, there, Nothing that I could come up with. And again, that doesn't mean I'm not missing anything, but as far as I could tell, it doesn't. So when we're talking about boxing in that. Well, the other thing I would say is that the light heavyweight champion was Billy Kahn and he, his most famous fight of the year was with Lewis. So. I always got to steal my point. You ruined <laughs> my whole punchline. Um, so yeah. So I, you know, we're talking about the early forties in boxing. We're talking about Joe Lewis. Joe Lewis defended the title. I mean, just to point out, he defended the title in December of 40, which I know is not, you know, part of this. He then defended the title January 30th, February 17th, three weeks or two and a half weeks apart, March 21st, April 8th, May 23rd, June 18th, September 29th. So in the first six months of the year, he defended the title six times and defended Mm -hmm. seven times in the whole calendar year. The big fight we're going to talk about in a minute is the Billy Kahn fight. Before that, 
just some of the names and none of them are, are names that jump right out at you. Red Berman in Madison Square Garden, Gus DeRazio in Convention Hall, Abe Simon, which is not a name a lot of boxers have these days, in Detroit, Tony Musto or Musto in St. Louis, Buddy Bear in Griffith Stadium. Buddy Bear was the brother of Max Bear. Bear, this one I wanted to bring up. Bear was disqualified after his manager refused to leave the ring. That's uh, a wrestling thing. Yeah, I guess what happened was that, and I, I did look this up, but I guess it seems like what happened was there was an issue in round six where he thought Lewis had done something illegal and he got in the ring to complain about it and the ref wouldn't hear about it and he was really upset about it and was insisting it should be a disqualification and eventually the ref had just had enough and said get out of the ring and when he wouldn't they disqualified him <laughs> but that's that's what happened in that fight but the and but the biggest fight he had that year was against Billy Kahn it was June 18th 1941 at the Polo Grounds let's also point out this was during Joe DiMaggio's streak I believe Joe DiMaggio was at this fight I'm going to pull up the article I have on it here. This was the biggest fight that Lewis had of the year at the Polo Grounds where the New York Giants played. And the story here is that the fight became part of, and I'm reading a, a really obscure website here, it says the fight became part of boxing lore because Khan held a secure lead heading into round 13. This was back when championship fights were 15 rounds. Khan was outmaneuvering Lewis. He tried to go for the knockout, instead wounding up losing the fight because he had a big lead and he tried to knock Lewis out and got himself knocked out when he might've been able to win by decision. So a little bit, not controversial because nobody disagrees about what happened, but sort of memorable as a blunder that Khan was probably leading or at least possibly leading. And instead of sitting back in the last three rounds, went for it and found himself on the wrong end of a Joe Lewis knockout. Khan is able to be successful in the first 12 rounds of the fight by what, you know, I don't know if they used the phrase at the time, but it was sort of like a stick and move type of thing. He was able to hit Lewis and then use his smaller body and his speed to stay away from him. In between the 12th and the 13th rounds, Lewis's manager tells him that he'll have to knock Khan out if he's going to win the fight. And so Lewis says, okay, well, then that's what I'll do. We talked a little bit when we did our boxing episode about how, Lewis was kind of the first champion to be well-liked by most of the general public. Johnson was not for... Black champion. No, no, period. Oh, I mean, as, people thought Dempsey was a draft dodger. Yeah. No, yeah. Now, yeah, that was the point I was going to make, was that Johnson was for racism reasons, and then Dempsey was... People thought he was a draft dodger. They didn't like him for any other reason. Lewis was somebody who was sort of really beloved by the public. But on this night, the crowd kind of gets behind Khan because he's the underdog and they start rooting for Khan. And that's sort of something that's a little bit jarring to Lewis. He's not used to having the crowd on the side of the other guy, but Lewis does what he needs to do. He knocks Khan out and he wins the fight. And there's a quote in here. I think, I don't know if this was Lewis's last fight before the war, but Lewis does enter into the military service. And at one point, they, the two guys meet at a party and Billy Kahn says to Lewis, he said, Joe, 
why didn't you let me hold the title for you during the war? Lewis says back, he deadpans. He says, Billy, I loaned it to you for 13 rounds and you didn't know what to do with it. So <laughs> that's a great quote. So here's the, I, I just want to go back to the, the bear thing. It says Lewis, Lewis dropped bear with a right in the sixth round. The challenger rose at the count of seven only to be knocked down again with the crowd roaring bear staggered to his feet at the count of nine and the bell rang to end the round. Lewis didn't hear the bell and rushed across the ring and floored bear with a right bear had to be carried to his corner by his handlers. When the bell rang to start the seventh round, Bear was still out. Bear's manager, Ansel Hoffman, and his trainer, Ray Arcel, argued that Lewis should be disqualified for hitting Bear after the bell. When they refused to leave the ring, Donovan disqualified Bear. Although it sounded like Bear was unconscious anyway, so even (laughs) if they hadn't disqualified him, he probably was not going to fare well against Joe Lewis, not being able to stand up. But... um, and then the other thing that I found is that much like Lewis did with Max Schmeling, the two men became friends in, in later years of their lives. So we will, ha- we will have to do an episode about Joe Lewis specifically. We'll, we'll have to find a time where it fits to do a very depressing episode and I will have to be appropriately angry and we can talk about just how much Joe Lewis got screwed by every facet of this country at every stage of his life, which is really, really unfortunate. But this was, if there was ever a golden age for Joe Lewis, it was after beating Schmeling and, you know, right around now where as best he could, he was the champion of the whole country as a black man in the early forties. Absolutely. All right. So uh, I think the only thing we really have left is the NFL. Yes. So this is a, uh, 1941, it's a 10-team league at this point. I'm going to pull up the exact standings. Mostly teams you heard of. You know, again, we're still in a an era where the NFL is, is it's not what it was in the 20s. It's certainly less primitive than that. But you've got 10 teams. you got five teams in the Eastern Division. The New York Giants, who win the division at 8-3. and three. Brooklyn Dodgers, 7-4. and four. Washington Redskins, 6-5. and five. Eagles, 2-8-1. and one. Steelers won nine and one. And then in the West, you have the Bears who went 10 and one, the Packers who went 10 and one, the Lions who went four, six and one, Chicago Cardinals three, seven and one, and the Cleveland Rams who were two and nine. This was back in the day of just the NFL championship game between the East and the West division winners. So there's no playoffs unless there's a tie. There was a tie. So the Bears played the Packers in a playoff game for the Western Division title, which the Bears won handily and then went on to beat the Giants just as handily in the 1941 NFL championship game, 37 to nine. Some of the leaders from that year, the leader in passing yards was Cecil Isbell of the Packers with 1,479 yards. The rushing leader was a guy by the name of Pug Manders, who was with the Brooklyn Dodgers football team and ran for 486 yards. And that was low even for the time. The leader the following year would be 696. The leader the previous year was 514. So he's the only rushing leader in the 1940s who's under 500 yards. By 1947, you'd have Steve Van Buren leading the league in rushing with 1,008 yards. So not much longer that a guy with under 500 yards would be able to leave the lead in rushing. And then the great Don Hudson, this was the first of four years in a row where he would lead the lead league in receiving at 738 yards. The following year was when he would have his sort of 
famous record-breaking year in 42 where he has over 1,200 receiving yards. So, yeah, um, the Packers and the Bears tie for the lead of the Western Conference. The Bears are one of the first teams to use the, what's known as the T formation. George Hallis puts it in with his famous legendary quarterback, Sid Luckman. And the T formation is basically what we now know as the modern NFL or really the modern football offense with the quarterback directly under center and then the running backs behind him. Before that, it was much more of a a wing type of offense where the ball could be snapped to any one of two or three players in the backfield. So the Bears using this T formation in 40, they beat the Redskins 73 to nothing in the NFL championship game. They don't run away with it quite as much as they did in 1940 and 1941, but they still beat the Packers in the playoffs and then beat the Giants in the uh, NFL championship game in 41. Let's, before we get to where we're probably going to end, let's talk just, I'm looking at the coaching changes section here. So the Steelers, Walt Kiesling was replaced by Burt Bell, who had sold his ownership stake in the Eagles. So he'd been the coach and part owner of the Eagles. Later commissioner, Burt Bell. Walt Keesley was replaced by Burt Bell, who had sold his ownership stake in the Eagles and bought a share of the Steelers. Bell resigned as head coach after losing the first two games. Aldo Dinelli did not fare any better, losing his next five games before being fired. Keesling returned for the final four games. Good God. <laughs> the guy gets fired, replaced by the owner. The owner quits. They bring in another guy, and then they go, let's go back to the first guy. <laughs> and that's one day we can almost do something like people don't realize that until 1969, the Steelers were the laughing stock of the NFL. Like, they were. It, it, it was not like, oh, they had some moments. They had no moments. <laughs> but anyway, so that was that. Honestly, we should get, to, and unless you had something else, what you're taught. There are a couple things I want to note. The first commissioner of the NFL who's known by that name is Elmer Layden, and he's elected by the owners in 1941 to be the first NFL commissioner. We're obviously, I think we're going to talk a little bit about December 7th, but just to sort of lead into that a little bit. First of all, I want to talk a little bit just because it's probably the most interesting thing team-wise to us. Not really a lot of legends on this Giants 1941 team that wins the Eastern Conference. I guess the best player is probably Tuffy Lehmans, who's the tailback, and he... Probably a legend, but a lesser legend. He's a Hall of Famer. Got his number retired. He does have his number retired by the Giants. I don't know. I think that might be the only... Hall of Famer that's on this 41 team. Obviously, Steve Young is still the coach. I guess Mel Hine is there. He's the center and linebacker. Steve Owen was the coach. That's what I said, isn't it? Steve Young. Oh, no. Steve Owen. I'm sorry. Yeah, very different. So not... And this is, I think, sort of like the... This is the only giant team that, that makes it to the postseason sort of for a long time, right? This is not... Let me just look at the Giants here. They might have lost in the NFL championship game as well. Okay, so they lost in 41, and then they were back in 44 in the championship game, and then back in 46. So this is the middle of sort of a bunch of teams that make the title game but don't win it. They hadn't won a title since 38, and they wouldn't win one again until 56. 
Yeah, so I'm just looking at some of the guys. I've heard that Ed Donowski, I've heard of. Hank Soar was on the team. Is Ray um, Flaherty on that team? Uh, or he was earlier, I think. Huff was on the team. I'm basically just going through and coming up with names I've heard of. Yeah, same here. Also, Jim Lee Howell, later the coach of the uh, Giants. We'll have to do an episode sometime on the early Giants, like pre-50s. Yeah, you're, that's a good point. The early, you know, coming into the league. Mel Hine was still on the team. You know, those are kind of a lot of the names that I recognize there. Mel Hine, probably the last center who will ever win the MVP of the NFL. <laughs> probably also the last center who will wear number seven. Well, who knows what the numbers now, but, um, but yeah, so the Giants for a long time, people talk about it in the 50s and 60s, but in a lot of even the 40s and the Giants were very good at winning the Eastern Division and then losing to the Packers or Bears. In yeah. The- so I, and maybe we should just kind of set the table a little bit with these other two teams. Let me take a look at the, the 41 Bears here. Hallis is the coach. They're led by Sid Luckman, who's his own really interesting story in and of himself. I'm, I'm just looking here. Luckman's definitely the best, the best player on the Bears, and much like all players of those days, he also plays defense. I believe Luckman plays defensive back like almost every quarterback did. And then the Packers, their best player far and away would have been Don Hudson. Don Hudson, who probably even, you know, if we're talking today is probably the best, the second best wide receiver of all time behind Jerry Rice. Their quarterback is Cecil Isbell, like I said, who led the league in passing in 41. They're coached by the legendary Curly Lambeau. They have a young Lou Brock on the team. Not the same Lou Brock. I didn't say it was the same Lou Brock. I said they have a young Lou Brock before her <laughs> position is listed on football reference.com. His position is listed as B. <laughs> back (laughs) all right (laughs) (laughs) so the schedule in those days was a little quirky the Packers end their season on November 30th with a record of 10 and 1 and the Bears at 9 and 1 are playing against the Cardinals at Wrigley Field there's only three games that day Three games, including this game, and something I read about in preparation for this, Lambeau and some of the other Packers are at the game at Wrigley Field watching, and you figure that makes sense because Green Bay is only, you know what, not that far, even with 1941 travel, not that far from Chicago and Wrigley Field. So a lot of those players are in attendance, and they're watching the game when the whole world changes or when America changes, at least the whole world was already changing. So it's, it's the last day of the regular season. There's only three games. You have the bears against the Cardinals in Chicago. You have the Dodgers against the giants in New York. In It's, uh, it's Tuffy Lehman's day at the polo grounds, polo grounds. And then you have the Redskins against the Eagles in DC. This is the last day of the regular season. You know, the NFL championship game would have been the next week, except they had to have a playoff game. So the playoff game was the 14th, and then the championship game was on the 21st. This is December 7th, 1941. In D.C., uh, I believe at one point there was an announcement that, I guess it was it was everywhere, but in D.C. it was obviously a bigger deal. There was an announcement. They didn't announce 
to the people during the game, hey, here's exactly what happened. But they there was an announcement at each of the stadiums, specifically in D.C., all servicemen who were at the game, please report to your stations. And that was because, obviously, the... Pearl Harbor attacks had been happening earlier, you know, not that much earlier because obviously with the time difference and when the game started, but um, this was sort of, I don't know if coincidentally is the right word, but this was the day that the world changed in America. You know, the playoffs and the, there's nothing, there's nothing they we're going to do in a week or in two weeks, but this was the, the, the only time after this that I feel like until 9-11, like 9-11 being a different thing, but this to me is sort of in league with the Kennedy assassination in 63 in terms of the time of year they happened where football was sort of the sport that was most reflected around the tragedy. I think that's right. I think that's right. So obviously the next day FDR comes out and, you know, basically declares war with Japan, knowing what that's going to entail, which is going to eventually mean war with Germany and the United States enters World War II and sports. Obviously, sports is not the most important thing, but sports as we know it does not return to normal really until late 45 or 46, depending on how you look at it. And just to sort of close the loop, the the Packers do play the Bears in this playoff. It's in 16 degree weather the following week. The Packers score first, but then the Bears then score 30 straight points to win the game. And then... Two weeks later, they play the Giants in the title game. Smaller attendance. There'd been a pretty good attendance for the game against the Packers, but for whatever reason, the game against the Giants only has about 13,000 people, and the Bears win that game as well and win their second straight NFL championship. Yep. So that was, you know, obviously the NFL season that year gets really a... And just the Army-Navy game had been the week before. So there's no tie in there because that was November 29th just occurred to me to think, but because now it's always the first or second weekend in December, but with a shorter regular season than it had been the week before. So it's, it's kind of fitting that the last major sporting events of the year happen right as the last normal sports year for a couple of years happened, you know, 42, 43, and especially 44 are basically I don't want to say a wash, but are not considered normal years from a sports standpoint. And it's funny to think, too, about how sports kind of shut down for the winter months in those days. And you had hockey, but that was a very, I'm sorry, in six cities. That was a very sort of provincial sport. And even, you know, I don't think there were there were some boxing matches probably. But, you know, I mean, we talk about Lewis was fighting every month. So obviously he had a fight, but. Obviously, no football or baseball. Obviously, no horse racing. So, yeah, sports kind of after you're right around Christmas until spring training kind of shut down a little bit for those couple of months. So it's uh, college basketball, but, you know, certainly not. Nothing that maybe garnered any level of national attention, I guess. I agree. Because if you think about the big national sports at the time, baseball by far, boxing, College football by the forties, you can throw pro football in there. But I mean, you know, if you, unless you were in one of those six hockey cities, and two of those were in Canada, so you know, absolutely. All right, well, so I think this was a good 
good whirlwind tour through 1941 in sports. Did you have anything else you wanted to mention or add before we wrapped it up? No, I think it's, I, I really like doing these deep dives for a year. You know, again, a lot of the, anything we're talking about pre-World War II for the most part, baseball is going to dominate the discussion and certainly a year like 1941 where baseball was the, you know, it was a great baseball year in addition to just being the biggest sport in the country. But, you know, it'd be interesting if we do one that makes sense, whether it was 50 years ago or 40 years ago or something where we can do one where maybe one of the other sports or two of the other sports are more prominent just to, you know, sort of, but, but I, I really enjoy these specific episodes like this. So hopefully people either learn something or are entertained by it, or just kind of uh, encourage them to maybe learn something more about something we talked about. Absolutely. I, I, I think it would be a good idea to do a, a newer one, maybe even something from our lifetimes and, if anybody has any suggestions, please feel free to let us know. Looking back, I think I I did you know a decent amount of research as I look at my big stack of books here. I, I wish I'd done a little more on Williams. I feel like I kind of we kind of shortchanged him a little bit. I wish we kind of had a little bit more to talk about about his um, his four oh six season. But I will uh, we will certainly circle back at some point and give a little more love to the Ted Williams and his great career and his nineteen forty one season because that. I'm sure there are a lot of things to mention there that we we didn't get into, but this was great. Uh, we enjoy, as Andrew said, we enjoy these deep dives, and we appreciate you all listening. And uh, this will probably just be one episode, so we thank you for staying with us here for about two hours uh, as we transport ourselves back to 1941. Hopefully, this podcast will not live in infamy. So, until next time, I'm Dan Newman, and I'm Andrew Newman. Goodbye, old sports. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Join George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, and myself, John Bozica, each month for the Professional Football Researchers Association official podcast. We'll discuss the history of the game, the many names of the game, and so many different things for you, making the history of football not only entertaining, but fun at the same time as we join you on the Sports History Network on the official PFRA podcast. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.